Open your mouth and close your eyes and you will get a big surprise. I have five children, so I played that game many times in my life. I'm sure you have played it as well. You know how the game works. The father has a treat in his hand that his child cannot see. It's a really, really good treat. It's a treat that the father knows the child will really, really enjoy. And so the father says, open your mouth and close your eyes and you will get a big surprise. Now, the outcome of this game is determined by how much the child trusts the father. Now, Pentecostal Johnny throws his head back closes his eyes, opens his mouth. He is ready for anything. But PCA Jimmy looks on aghast at Johnny's willingness to obey with so little information. And and PCA Jimmy responds, could you parse the word open for me? Is it present, indicative, imperative, or future reflexive? As used in the Greek of Jesus' day, does open refer to just a small opening or a wide opening? And what do you mean by surprise? I'm a cessationist. I, I need to know what you mean by surprise before I open my mouth. Of all the wonderful attributes of the PCA, and there are many, many wonderful attributes, spontaneity is usually not on the top of that list. Sometimes we don't do very well with surprise. And beyond question, beyond question, God has given us all the surprises that we need. He has surprised us with his grace. He has surprised us with the intensity of love that he has for us. Jesus has surprised us by the price that he was willing to pay for our sins. We don't need God to surprise us anymore. But Jesus tells us we have a Father who loves to give good gifts. And I think our Father has more surprises for us. I think He will surprise us with a greater vision of His glory. Surprise us with an ever-deepening understanding of the truth of His Word in ways we've never understood before. That He would surprise us with fresh applications of His unchanging truth to a culture around us that is constantly changing. I pray, I do, I pray that God surprises low country presbytery. If we trust God enough to close our eyes and open our mouths, he might surprise us by doing through us powerful things for the kingdom that we haven't even guessed things that we have not even imagined, so we haven't even thought to ask the Lord for them. I'm excited about how the Lord might surprise us, but we have to trust. We have to trust, and we have to thankfully receive from the Lord whatever it is that he surprises us with. The passage I would like us to look at this morning is from Haggai, chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to ask you to turn to Haggai chapter 1. And when you found your place, I want to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the one and only true and living God. Haggai chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, this is the word of the Lord. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in, uh, the month in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts." Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you once again for your word. Thank you that you care enough about us to reveal yourself to us, speak your truth to us. Thank you, Lord, for the way you've superintended your word through these centuries and millennia so we can hold your truth in our hands. We ask now, Spirit of God, that you would be the teacher here this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes to see and our minds hearts to understand the truth that you have for us. Transform us by your spirit through your word, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. First, I want us to consider this morning the surprises that God's presence brings. Look again in chapter 1, verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. Surprises. Unexpected, astonishing things have to be a possibility when God is present. One of the biggest surprises for me in this particular story is that God came to his people. He spoke to them through the prophet Haggai when they were not being faithful to the Lord. When they are not, when they were not obeying what he called them to do. You know the background of this story. God sent his people back to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon, and he sent them back with this mission rebuild the temple. When the people arrived back in Jerusalem, they began to do what God had commanded them to do. They were living in obedience to the Lord. 
They got the foundation of the temple laid, and Ezra describes what happened. The foundation of the temple was laid, and the priests in their vestment with trumpets, and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of God's house had been laid. This is the kind of joy that comes to God's people when we obey. Trumpet playing, cymbal crashing, goodness of God shouting joy. It doesn't sound particularly Presbyterian, but that's the way it was. It feels just that good to obey God. But, Ezra tells us, when the enemies of Judah heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, they began to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building, and they hired counselors to work against them and to frustrate their plans. So, in response to the opposition that they faced, God's people simply quit doing what God had commanded them to do. Perhaps they didn't trust God enough to open their mouths and close their eyes and allow God to surprise them by what he could do to those who were opposing them. Perhaps the opposition didn't need to even be that intense. It's possible that these people were happy enough to find a reason to stop doing that job so that they could begin a new one. And Haggai tells us what that was In chapter 1, verse 4, God asks the people, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while while this house lies in ruin? And so there you have their new mission. The mission for which they abandoned the mission the Lord had given them, and it was to make their own houses fine, to make their own houses comfortable, while the Lord remained, quote, unquote, homeless. 16 years, 16 years, the people lived in disobedience to the Lord. All of us have to be on guard against building our own kingdoms. And the deceptive reality for us is that so much of what we do looks really spiritual. And it looks like we are building the kingdom of God because we are, after all, ruling elders and teaching elders under shepherds over the flock of God. But when we are honest, even if we admit it only to ourselves, it's sometimes our own kingdoms that you and I are building. Sometimes we crave for ourselves the glory that belongs to God. We don't close our eyes and open our mouths for the kingdom work that God has for us because it may not lead, we believe, to the plan we have for ourselves. If we trust God, He may not give us what we want. And so we go about trying to get it for ourselves. So the surprise in this passage and the surprise for us is that God doesn't abandon his people because they are disobedient. He doesn't abandon his people when they are busy building their own kingdoms. We probably think God should abandon them. He would be justified if he did. And so the grace of God isn't it always surprising. 
that God is always giving to his people what they do not deserve. So God, in his goodness, in his grace, he comes to these people and he speaks to them. And in the midst of their disobedience, God speaks to his people through Haggai and he reissues his call to them. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. Now look at the end of verse 4 and then verse 5 of chapter 2. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. God is present with his people, not because they deserve his presence, not because they're good enough to have the God of the universe speak to them and dwell among them, but simply because God covenanted to do so. God promised to be their God and they his people, and God is always faithful to his promises. And so when God is present, there are surprises. Look in chapter 1, verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Surprise! The stirring of God. God woke these people up. He roused their spirits, the political leader, the spiritual leader, and all the people, God stirred up their spirits. How surprised we would, be, we would be to see such a thing in our day. The implication, of course, is that the spirits of these people were somehow languid, lethargic, sleepy, droopy. That's not a surprise. Because that's what happens to the human spirit, especially in God's people, who were created for more. God's people who are called for something much higher when we choose to live self-centered, self-focused lives. We live for ourselves. We live for building our own kingdom and there's no satisfaction in it. Look in verse 6 of chapter 1. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. No satisfaction. No fulfillment. But here again is the good news. God doesn't leave his people where they are. He takes them where they need to be. Again, in the end of verse 14, God stirred up their spirits and they came and they began to build the house of the Lord. Only God, only God can stir our spirits to do what truly satisfies. That is so true. Only God can stir our spirits to do the things that will truly satisfy. It's true for ancient Israel. It's true for us as well. God doesn't leave us languishing where we are. He stirs us up to something bigger than ourselves and our kingdoms, bigger than our self-focus and our self-satisfaction. The question for us is how responsive are we to the stirrings of God? How much room do we leave in our lives? How much room do we leave in our ministries for the stirrings of God? Are we a little bit afraid of what God might stir us to? Is our theology so rigid and so thoroughly defined that we have predefined how the ever-present spirit-stirring life-breathing God will act? 
so that we leave no room for surprise. It's true confession time for me. May I confess? Howard, should I confess? (laughs) In my almost 23 years as a presbyter, I have not very often equated presbytery with the stirring of God. (laughs) That's supposed to be funny. (laughs) But it's true. And y'all can't leave me standing here exposed on this because I've ridden to presbytery with some of you. And I've sat on the pew at presbytery beside you and I know how you think as well. But that doesn't matter, right? That is the past. This is the present. And after this is the future. And that's what really matters. God is present with us. That's his promise. And where God is present, there'll be surprises. And it's a new day for Presbytery. And with what will our ever-present God surprise us? This is an uncertain place to be. For us, it's like opening our mouths and closing our eyes. But it's an exciting place to be when we trust God. God surprises when he is present. I want to move on. And I want us to talk finally about the surprises that God stirs us to. All right? The Spirit of God stirs up the people. They obey. They begin to build the temple. And they build and they build and they build and they build. And the temple rises and it starts to take form in front of them. But after they are about a month into the project, they notice as they're looking at the building they've built, this temple, ah, it doesn't look very much like what we expected it would look like. It sure doesn't look like the old temple. Solomon's temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Solomon was wealthy, had resources beyond imagination. So he imported laborers. He imported all the materials that he needed. You know what the temple was like. Covered with gold, gold, silver, jewels everywhere. Glorious temple. This new temple doesn't look anything like that. They no longer have the wealth or the resources of Solomon at their disposal. And so the people become discouraged. If they had been excited by the presence of the Lord, if they had been excited by the stirring of the Lord, now they were disappointed with the work to which God had called them. Look in chapter 2, verse 3. God asks through Haggai, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? God wouldn't ask the question if God didn't want an answer. If he did not want his people to evaluate their work and be honest about their feelings concerning the work they had done. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And the answer is yes, Lord, yes. This this is pathetic. It's terrible. It doesn't look anything like the first temple. And now the point has been made. God's perspective, human perspective are not the same. Though their work looks like nothing to them, it is not nothing to God. Look in chapter 2, verse 6. Fear not, says the Lord, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. In short, God owns it all. If God wanted this temple, that he had stirred the spirits of the people to build, to be covered with gold, then God would have stockpiled gold all around them. But that's not the kind of glory 
that God had for this temple, though God has glory for it. Look in verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Though they could not see it, this visually uninspiring, insignificant temple without silver or gold is actually going to have greater glory than the temple of Solomon. Their human eyes can't see it. Their human mind can't comprehend it. But God's eye can see it because God's mind has planned it. And so their job, their job is with faith and trust to keep at the work God stirred them to do and trust God with the result. Our job, your job, my job, is with faith and trust to keep at the work that God stirs us to do and trust God with the result. Our job is not to be a servant to our own expectations. Our job is not to compare ourselves to other people or to other churches and the work that God has inspired them to do. It is not our job to make judgments. Their work looks more glorious than my work. If we are faithfully obeying the stirrings of the Lord, faithfully trusting in Him, faithfully doing the work to which He has called us, it is really irrelevant what the work seems like to us. Our perspective is not the one that counts. God's is. And our labors only need to look like what God wants them to look like with the resources that He has entrusted to us. So what glory will this temple possess? How is this temple going to surpass the glory of Solomon's? Well, we know this. The Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of the one and only true and living God, will walk in this temple. In this temple, the lame will come to Jesus and He'll heal them. And the blind will come to Jesus and He'll give them sight. In this temple, Jesus is going to stand up and cry out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In this temple, this one, Jesus will proclaim, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When we are looking for glory, when we are looking for glory, we only have to look at Jesus. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's glory in Jesus. Verse 9, And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Through Jesus Christ and His atoning work on the cross, there is peace between God and man. The sacrificial system of the temple, it was ordained by God. It was necessary for the forgiveness of sin and therefore it was a spiritually beautiful act. But I can't imagine that sacrifice was a visually beautiful act. All the slaughter, all the blood constantly flowing, never ceasing. Day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century... And then Jesus. 
And from the cross, he proclaimed what? It is finished. The price of sin has been paid in full. Now there's peace. Peace in the temple. The sacrifices can cease. Peace to everyone who labors and strives to earn the favor of God. For He Himself is our peace. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through Him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. Is that good news? Is that good news? What glory! Peace with God through Jesus Christ. Of course, the people who were building this temple could not see the glory of Jesus. Had they seen it, they would have been surprised by it and they might not thought much of God's plan. Certainly the religious leaders of Jesus' day didn't see glory in God's plan because God's definition of glory didn't fit their definition of glory and so they rejected Christ. But God's definition is the only one that counts. And so if we keep looking at Jesus, if we keep looking at Jesus, if we keep our eyes fixed on Him, if we keep faithfully pointing other people to Jesus Christ and to His gospel, there will be glory in it because Jesus is in it. And we will be surprised by the transformation that Jesus brings and the way He causes His, spirit, his kingdom to grow. But we don't get to choose what that looks like. God will have to surprise us with that. I don't want to upset you, but I want you to know you are surrounded by dead people. It's true. You worship in a 175-year-old building, you got a lot of dead people. They're everywhere over here, and they're everywhere over here. Dead people. But I think about them a lot because these people who are in the ground gave their resources to build this building 175 years ago. And they helped lay the brick as this church rose. And when they were doing all that, they could never imagine us, you and me, here. And they probably did not know that they were claiming a gospel spot in the heart of the city of Charleston, in a culture like the one in which we now live. But God knew that. And so they did their part and passed on. And so when I see these tombstones every day, I'm reminded, you know what? I am not so much. I am not so much. I'm just one tiny little piece in what God is doing. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. We have got to be willing to be insignificant in our own eyes. We have got to be willing to be insignificant in the eyes of other people. The surprise could be that God is using us, Low Country Presbytery, at just a foundational level. Maybe we're just laying the bricks And we don't know the future glory that God has for Low Country 
Presbytery. Or maybe he'll use us in a big way. Maybe we will become a model flagship Presbytery. Wouldn't that be amazing? Maybe God would give us the glory that we really want when we're honest. Mega churches. Woo! Famous preachers. All that's up to God. But we must work. But now, the Lord says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people. And now get to work. For I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. We can't stop working because what God surprises us with does not meet our expectations or because it's not what we want for ourselves. If we submit ourselves to the Lord and trust him, it will look as God wants it to look. And so you know what we must do. Open our mouths and close our eyes and trust God for whatever surprises he has for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray now as individuals representing individual churches, but together as a presbytery, that we would trust you just this much. That's what the outcome of this is based on in the end, Lord, is how much we trust you and how much we trust your sovereign will and plan for our lives. If we trust, Lord, that's what we must do. Trust and leave the results with you. So, Lord, you invite us to pour out our hearts before you like water. And so the prayer of our hearts is that you would do mighty things through low country presbytery. The prayer of our hearts is that the kingdom of God would grow in beautiful, powerful ways because of the ministry of this presbytery. That's the desire of our hearts, Lord, that people would come to faith in Christ, that the poor and the needy would be helped. Lord, that we would be funnels through which the resources that you have entrusted us flow out into the cities and the towns and suburbs where we find ourselves that people would be helped and come to faith in Christ. But Lord, also at the end, we just submit ourselves to you. We ask you to keep us faithful. We ask you, Lord, to keep ever at bay our own desires, our own kingdom building, our own attempts to get glory. Keep those far from us, Lord, and help us fix our eyes on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.